Thanks so much for joining the podcast Thin Places with me, Malcolm Duncan. You're about to listen to a series called um, Confronting the Idols of Our Age, which was originally preached between the 26th of August 2012 and the 14th of August 2012 at Gold Hill Baptist Church in Buckinghamshire, where I was the lead pastor. Two parts of the series, part five that looks at religion and part seven that looks at consumerism, were preached by friends of mine, Vicky and Barry Thompson. I pray that this really blesses you as you think about how you might confront the idols in your life and in our culture. For more information about my ministry, you can check out uh, my webpage, which is malcolmduncan.co.uk, or you can visit my blog at malcolmduncan.org. I'm now the lead pastor at Dundonald Elam, and you can find out more about that at dundonaldelam.church. And if you'd like to pick up more of my teaching while I was at Gold Hill, then simply go to goldhill.org. Thanks for listening. And I pray that it blesses you. Job had friends. Well, they weren't really friends. People who criticized him when he tried something, moaned at him when he attempted to do something. But perhaps no better example can be found than the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. A man who prospered according to Genesis chapter 39 or was successful wherever God sent him. And yet his brothers deeply resented him. They resented him because he was a favorite of his father. They resented him because whatever he touched seemed to work. Those types of resentments, those types of arrogances, those types of reactions to people who do well are not what I want to talk about tonight. There's a right view of success and pride and power that I want to reflect on for a moment before we come to the thing that I want to dig dig into. Satisfaction is not pride. Being satisfied with a job well done. Being satisfied with a life well lived. Being satisfied that you did your best. That's not pride. That's a godly sense of having done what you can. And we should celebrate that. Each of us should somehow be able to go to bed at night satisfied. That we have served God today. That when he asked we said yes. That when we were called we followed And of course, there is a godly success. Abraham was a successful patriarch. Joseph was successful. Many people through scripture were successful. And success in and of itself is not wrong. And there is a power, which is a good power, a power to make a difference in the world, a power to stand up for what is right, a power with finance that can bring change, a power with position and responsibility and authority, which are God-given. And we should thank God for all of those. Instead, tonight, what I want to think about is pride, success, and power, which are wrong, which have a wrong root, which undermine us. In Buckinghamshire, we live in a county where for many people your worth is determined by what you have rather than who you are. It's an endemic cancer that eats at the heart of men and women and young people and it destroys their worth and their value. And the irony is that the very things that promise to give us life and worth and significance actually suck the life out of us. And churches suffer from it as much as any other aspect of our society. Like the fingers on the hands of hopelessness 
a wrong sense of pride and a wrong sense of success and a wrong sense of power grab at our throats and constrict our breathing. They squeeze tightly on the airways of grace and of humanity and of equality until there is nothing left. Our lives become empty, meaningless, and yet full of stuff, full of position, full of all the things that others in British society or in the West or in the Northern Hemisphere tell us make us successful. Yet deep down inside, there's a yearning and a hunger for worth and value and significance that none of these things can fill. Pride is not so much a bullet as it is a poison. It slowly kills us. It gradually destroys our compassion and our love and our self-respect until we become shadows of what we once were. If we're not careful, success becomes a replacement of faithfulness and integrity. We judge ourselves not by whether we have done the right thing, but by whether we have done the profitable thing, the thing that makes us look best or feel better. We judge ourselves according to whether we've done the thing that gives our standing the biggest boost, helps us feel more important, rather than the thing that brings God the greatest glory and gives his name the greatest honor. And power, when we seek to yield it in a wrong way or seek to have wrong power, is the pinnacle of self-reliance. It's saying that we are stronger than anyone else if we don't Watch out. Pride is when we want to be better than others. When we compare ourselves to others, then we are comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. You could compare yourself to me and be doing rather well, I should think, tonight. At least I'm not as bad as Malcolm. However, that's the wrong thing to compare yourself to. What we should all compare ourselves to is not one another. God and then the comparisons change then our responses change ungodly success is when we put our benefit first and at the expense of other people and when the results for us matter more than truth and integrity and a wrong yielding of power is when we think we are stronger and better than anyone else I wonder tonight where you and I have touch points when it comes to pride, to wrong understanding of success, and to a wrong wielding of power. Do we have pride in our children that ends up being wrong? I wonder how many parents in this room have sought to live their unfulfilled dreams through children. Do we have pride because our house is better than next door's? Because our car is bigger than theirs? When we see our neighbours prospering, is there something deep down inside of us that says we've got to work a bit harder so that we can get a better car or a bigger house? At what point does our career become a god in our hearts and in our lives? Is there ever a point for us, those of us anyway who are Christians, where we say it is right to step off the career ladder in order to step onto what God wants for us for his kingdom? When does success 
become an unhealthy obsessment in our lives rather than something that we strive for with biblical integrity. And in churches, do we look at others who are prospering? And is our response, thank God, or do we look through narrow eyes and think, "Mm, I'm not so sure? I know churches that pray for revival again and again and again, year after year after year after year after year after year after year. And sometimes I want to say, and I, I do too, by the way, sometimes I want to say, what would you do? What would you do? Gold Hill family, let me talk to you tonight before I, I'm not going to really dive into this water. What would you do if after having prayed, some of you for 60 years, 70 years, people like Madge for 90 years, praying for God to move in this village, what would you do if God sent somebody else to start a church and in six months it was five times our size? Oh, we couldn't do that. Because we've been here longer. We got here first. Our turf is marked out. This is our village. No, it's not. Or what if God raised something up in Buckinghamshire and it swept across this county and we were left in its wake, scratching our hands and heads and wondering what was happening. Would we look and immediately say, they're just trying to steal people from other churches. They're taking away what's really ours. You see, pride isn't just something that affects people outside of church. I've been at enough fraternals and at enough church ministers' meetings and at enough gatherings of Christian leaders to hear the same conversation again and again and again and again and again. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, I don't know, James. Imagine you're the other minister for a minute, James. Hello, James, how are you? I'm good. Hello, Malcolm, how are you? I'm good. Where do you come from? Oh, I come from Buckinghamshire. Oh, do you lead a church in Buckinghamshire? Yes, yes, yes. What kind of church do you lead? A Baptist church. Oh, good. How many people come on a Sunday? Within about two minutes. How many people do you have? What's your budget? How many staff? How many programs are you running? What things are you doing? And immediately you get into this trap, which is always about comparison and pride. It affects all of us, including ministers. But one brief look at scripture shows us that this thing, if we are not careful, can become an idol that will destroy us. The quest to be better than someone else, to be at the top of the tree, to be the one that has a A glow that everybody else follows in the wake of is unhealthy, unholy, and destructive. It affects the schools that we send our children to. It affects the way we treat them when they get examination results. It affects the jobs that those that we love take. It affects our understanding of worth. If we were paying people according to worth in the United Kingdom... I think nurses and teachers and doctors and social workers should be right at the top of the salary scale, not at the bottom. So it's something that affects us all. According to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, we read, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The greatest sin is the sin of self-righteousness. It's the sin of believing you're better than God. It's what drove the serpent to challenge Adam and Eve, primordial man and woman in the garden. As he said to them, did God really say, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. It comes in a hundred guises. 
You're more powerful than you think. You are better than you think. You can do anything you want. Don't let anybody hold you down or push you aside. You are the master of your own destiny. You create your own success. I've heard sermons on this. Self-motivating, egotistical claptrap dressed up in religious language to make people feel good about themselves. Psalm Psalm, um, 104 says, In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. People who constantly live as if God is not watching, God is not looking, God does not see, God does not care. We can do what we like, when we like, to whom we like, so long as we benefit from it. And I tell you, my friends, and my brothers and my sisters from this church and other churches, hear me very simply, God will have none of it. Proverbs chapter 16, a verse that all of you, or many of you will know, says, pride goes before destruction. It's that wonderful paraphrase, pride goes before a fall. And a haughty spirit, or an arrogant spirit, before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit amongst the poor than to divide the spoil with the pride. If you have a Bible with you, just for a moment, turn to Isaiah chapter 14, because I want to show you something about the very... um, early story of the casting out of Satan from heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 to 15. Very hard to understand this passage, but that's for another sermon. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart. You said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the person who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who would not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like loathsome carrion clothed with the dead. Those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial. Because you have destroyed your land and you have killed your people. The great sin that takes place. That causes Lucifer or Satan to be thrown out of the heavenly realm. Is the sin of pride where he says, I could be better than God. I could be the master of my own destiny. I could have all the power that I want. And for that, he is thrown from heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, the apostle Paul, a follower of Jesus by this stage, is writing to an early church in Asia Minor. And he's challenging them about pride. And he's challenging them about arrogance. And he's challenging them about their claims to power and influence and strategy. And he says to them, I choose to boast in nothing. Save Christ himself. I choose to boast in no one. Save what God has done for me. Pride 
is giving ourselves the credit for something that God has accomplished. It might be giving ourselves the credit for building a healthy church. It might be taking the glory for building a healthy family. It might be saying that we are the ones responsible for the success in our lives. Whatever it is, when we say we did it, we steal something from God. Pride is taking the glory that belongs to God and God alone. And if you think about it carefully, let me talk to Christians for a moment. Because this is the most challenging thing of all. To take the glory that belongs to God. And to take the honor that belongs to God. And to take the credit that belongs to God. Basically amounts to this. Pride is worshipping ourselves. Pride is self-worship. The exaltation of ourselves above the place that belongs to God. Over the last three weeks, these series have brought a stilled hushness about this community as we've listened. At times an uncomfortable stillness as we stir in to our own lives and say, actually, I too am guilty of this. But the good news is that there is grace in Jesus Christ. There is release and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It is prideful to take the handle of your own destiny. It is prideful to put your desires before other people's. It is prideful to say that what you want matters than what anybody else wants. Proverbs chapter 29 says, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. In the New Testament, James the Apostle says this in James chapter 4 verse 6. Listen to these words because they're strong and they're not mine. God opposes the arrogant. It's not just that he endures them. God opposes arrogant people. But he is kind to those who are humble. That's almost a direct quotation from Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord sustains the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. It all sounds very heavy, but I want you to understand the seriousness of the issue. The condition of the heart that pride leads to is haughtiness. Jesus Christ named it along with murder and theft and adultery and blasphemy in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus' mother, Mary, as she sang the song that we now call the Magnificat, says this, He has scattered those abroad who are haughty in the intention of their hearts in Luke chapter 1. When David realized his deep sinfulness, he responded to God by saying, My heart has been haughty in Psalm 131. Even a heart that has been humble in God's service, like the heart of King Hezekiah or King Uzziah, can be turned into a heart of haughtiness when we rely on our own strength rather than on the strength of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read of King Uzziah and his power and all that he did that pleased the Lord. But listen to how his story ends in verse 16. However, as soon as he was strong, Uzziah's heart became haughty, even to the point of causing ruin, so that he acted unfaithfully against Jehovah his God And came into the temple of Jehovah to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Uzziah, a good man, forgot where his power came from. I wonder how many people you and I know who started off well, humble and dependent on the Holy Spirit for power. 
recognizing that without him they could achieve nothing. But as they grew in success, perhaps at home, perhaps in their career, perhaps in their family, or even perhaps in their church, they forgot that they needed God. And they became the center of their own lives. And as a result, they end up struggling, alone, prideful, and haughty. They thought that they could resist sin. So their relationships became lax. They thought that they could do anything they wanted. And then they did the wrong thing. Be careful of pride. I want to read you an extended story from the New Testament to help you think about this as we move to asking, is there a release? Is there a way forward? It's from Matthew chapter 19. It's the story of a young man who was rich and powerful and successful and probably popular. Verse 16 of Matthew 19 through to verse 30. Then someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to them, He said to Jesus, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father. And your mother. Also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him. I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him. If you wish to be perfect. Go. Sell your possessions. And give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come. And follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded, and they said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is a remarkable story of a young man living with the consequences of pride and power. He thought that he could decide his own destiny. He thought that he was in charge and nothing and no one was going to take that away from him. Let's take a couple of lessons from it to see where they might lead us this evening. The opposite of pride. What is the opposite of pride? Humility. And what therefore is humility? 
Well, humility, and I go right back to the first point I made this evening, is not this kind of, oh, I'm worthless, useless, vile, ugly, degenerate, unloved, I'm hopeless and weak and powerless, I can do nothing, look at me, I'm just a mess. That's not humility. Humility is best defined as a right estimation of yourself. So there are many people who suffer from pride, who think that they are strong and powerful. But what you will find hard for me to say is, those of us that always put ourselves at the bottom of the pile also suffer from the opposite of pride in a wrong way. We've been warped in our thinking into believing that we're useless and hopeless and that there's nothing, nothing that God can do with us, that there's nothing that he could ever change in us. The, 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 the challenge that destroys pride is a right understanding of ourselves. And where does a right understanding of ourselves come from? Understanding the way God views us. What I have said every week is true for these idols also. You cannot remove them. You must replace them. So if you're thinking, I'm just useless or I'm the king of the castle, the answer for both is the same. Get a right understanding of how God views you. And he loves you. And he has made a way for you to have a right understanding of yourself. He sees you in your worst moments and loves you still. Power. I am challenged, and I've been challenged this week in preparing for this um, sermon tonight, By one verse, there are many verses I could bring to you about power. The power of the haughty. The power of those with horses and chariots in Israel that have been cast into the sea. But this one verse keeps coming back to me. This powerful encounter between Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate. Recorded in John chapter 19. Here is the center of the political world. Rome facing the king of kings and the lord of lords Jesus. And Pilate, in arrogance and assumption, looks at Jesus Christ and says, Do you not realize that I have power to destroy you? And Jesus looks right back at him and says, You have no power except that which has been given to you by my Father. When we try to do something in our own power, we are asserting that we do not need God. Listen to the instruction to the early church. That we are exploring on Sunday mornings together. Do not leave Jerusalem. Until you receive power from me. And then you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. To the uttermost ends of the earth. And this young man's success. However it came. Could not be success at any cost. You see Jesus issues a series of challenges. In verses 16 to 20 of Matthew chapter 19. By saying to the young man. Honor these commandments. The young man looks back and says I've done all of that. Jesus is pointing out. That somehow in his thinking. He doesn't correct him by the way. Most of us would have corrected him. That's for another message as well. But somehow we need a right understanding of ourselves. I am not a strong person. I'm a weak person. I'm not able to combat sin in my own strength. Do you know why I know? I've tried and failed too many times. 
I've got myself into decisions or into things and thought, oh, I can deal with this. And I've got it wrong. And God in his grace has forgiven me. But I wonder, do we have a right understanding of ourselves tonight? Because that's where pride is destroyed. When we realize that actually without him, we're not very good at this thing called life. I couldn't make my marriage work without Jesus. I couldn't be a father of any value without God. I certainly couldn't lead you. You are too precious to be trusted to my human wisdom. A right understanding of ourselves undermines pride. Being able to say I need help. Being able to say I'm not so sure what to do. I wonder if you're able to do that tonight. Other areas in your life. As you sit listening to me, where you think, I'm not so sure what to do. I don't really know the answer. That's a great lesson from God. I'm not really sure how I'm going to cope with the next 10 days as a father. But I know God can help me. As many of us go through the turmoils and the struggles, and most of you have gone through them before, of saying goodbye to children as they go off to do other things with their lives. I'm not strong enough to work out how to cope with all of that. We've got a church meeting on Tuesday. Not a bad one, a good one. But even then, I'm not sure how to lead that meeting. I need God to help me. I need his strength. I've got a friend who's leaving our staff at the end of the month, and I'm going to miss him dreadfully. I'm desperately not looking forward to the next two weeks. So I have to throw myself on God's mercy and say, I need your strength. I need you to help me to do this job. I need you to help me to live. I need you to help me to pastor these people. There are folk that have been taken into hospital today or going into hospital tomorrow for terrible treatment here at Gold Hill. There's a list as long as your arm of men and women who are battling for their lives who are finding life difficult. And I tell you, if it was as simple as a quick prayer and a hallelujah and they were all okay, I'd do it. I don't know how to pastor them. I don't know how to love them. I don't know how to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with them. But God knows. And therefore I'm able to lean into him. And the killer to pride is leaning into God. The killer to pride is being able to say, I can't do this. And you might be facing huge issues, big challenges, stuff that's too big for you to cope with. Maybe that's because God wants you to discover that you can lean into him. Maybe tonight he wants you to know that you can lean into him. Maybe the very struggles that you don't know what to do about, that you think are pulling you down, are actually there to lift you up so that you can lean into God. But there's something interesting happens in verses 21 and 22 here. Because the young man saying that he has obeyed all the commandments is confronted by this deep, deep commandment from Jesus. Then go sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor and come and follow me. That tells me that not only does pride get dealt a deathly blow when I realize that I need to my, the strength of God. He is my source. But pride is dealt a deathly blow When I'm asked to do something and I have to choose to say yes. Jesus went right to the heart of this young man's issue. And his issue was his stuff. What's your issue? What's the issue in your life that if God said, I need you to give that to me. 
your response would be like him. No, I'd rather go than give that to you. See, it's an unpopular word, but it's an important word. The readiness to give up everything can be called obedience. If God asks you, will you say yes? To say no is to say you're proud. To say you're stronger than him. That you have the power and not him. In verses 27 to 30, we see this young man being challenged because Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them the story that if they want to follow him, they have to put him first. They have to look at the world the way he looks at the world. And here's the killer or the great encouragement for me. And from verses 27 to 30, the disciples, who are clearly upset at this young rich man, say to Jesus, this is Northern Ireland version, what about us? We've given up everything to follow you. We've left our parents. We've left our families. What about us? And you would expect, wouldn't you, that Jesus would say, well, don't worry, I'll sort it all out right now. And instead, Jesus says, do you think for one minute that when eternity is turned around, when history is rolled up, do you think for one minute that God hasn't seen what you've given up? And here's the challenge for us. Many of us still say that. Perhaps you've never done it. Why do the wicked prosper, Lord? Why do the unrighteous seem to get everything their own way? Why do powerful regimes seem to hold power? Why can things happen in the Middle East the way they do? Why does it all work out so unfairly? And you know what the answer is? God says back to us, because we're not at the end yet. Because one day... Everything will be sorted out. But it's not today. That's the answer for why we see people struggling. For why we see our friends ill. For why we see the world in the mess that it is. The answer is the same. One day God will sort all of this out. My problem and your problem, perhaps, but mine definitely, is I would like it all sorted out now, please. Because I'm in charge and I want to know. And I have to have all the answers. And God says back, well, you're not going to. So are you going to trust me or not? And then in verse 30, he says, Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. It's easy to believe that. It's harder to believe it when you see the wrong way around stuff happening around you. But we believe it nevertheless. How do I finish what I'm trying to say to you tonight? Well, this is what I've written. We call success money in the bank. A beautiful home. And a perfect family. For Jesus. It was a life where he had no home. He had no money. He had no wealth. His family rejected him. And he walked alone to a cross because his father asked him to do it. We call success a long and a happy life where we reach a ripe old age. And we die with our children and our grandchildren around us, hanging on for our wisdom. For Jesus, success was not so much about the length of his life as the purpose of it. 
His life was successful because he accomplished what God had called him to do. In natural terms, he was cut down in his prime. Yet on the cross, he cried, it is finished. We call success being able to do what we want, when we want, how we want. We, we talk in terms of freedom of choice, financial independence, and being able to live as we see fit. For Jesus, success was not freedom. It was submission to his Father's will. We live with more money than any generation before us, but less happiness and contentment. We have an endless pursuit of climbing ladders, moving up, becoming better. Yet we hunger for more meaning, feel less valuable, and have a weaker sense of identity than perhaps any other generation before us. The world tells us that we will find success and power in a career or a car or a check or a qualification or a relationship. God says we find worth and value and significance in a cross and in a relationship with him. And I know, not because I'm a prophet or because I'm clever, but I know that in this room tonight and listening on the internet, there are hundreds of men and women and young people that desperately want worth and value that goes beyond the temporary, who have tried everything else and desperately need to know that they're of value and of worth. And the only thing that will bring it is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And here's the great, the good, the astounding, the amazing news. God invites every one of us to that relationship tonight. I'm trying not just to use words now, but to minister into your hearts. Will you create a space for him? Will you open up the area that you need to say yes to for him? And will you let him minister real value, real worth, and real love into that place in your heart that is aching for it now? I'd love you to pray with me. Please bow your heads. Forgive us when we think our power comes from our name or our bank balance or our position. Help us to realize that our power comes from a relationship with you. Forgive us when our family tree or our length of tenure in a church or our cleverness becomes the thing that we boast about. Instead, in the words of the Apostle Paul, let our only boast be in the cross of Jesus, the compassion and the mercy of God. And forgive us when we measure success by comparing ourselves to each other as a church 
as families, as men or as women. Please break these chains in our lives. And instead, let us be men and women who are obedient to Jesus. Who follow where you want us to go. Who put aside the cheap trappings around us. And instead, find our value in these wonderful words. We are loved by God. We are saved by grace. We are a forgiven and accepted people. Help us to live in the reality of who we are. I want to ask a very simple question while your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed. I haven't done this before in Gold Hill. Well, part of it I've done before, but part of it I haven't. The way the early church stood up and said that, the way the early church stood up and said, I want to be what God wants me to be. I want to be free from the idols in my life was they were baptized. They were plunged into water as a symbol to the world that they were followers of Jesus Christ and that their lives had been forgiven. It was a public declaration to those around them that their old life was gone and their new life was now being lived in the power of Christ. Underneath me, is about four foot of water. And I've asked for the tank to be filled, not because I'm assuming that people are going to get baptized tonight, but because I want to ask, if you have decided to follow Christ, we have extra clothes, we have extra towels, and we've got all the time in the world. If you have decided to follow Christ, either tonight or at some point in the past, and you've never declared it to the world, and you'd like to do so, by being baptized, by being immersed in this water, then we would like to give you that opportunity to respond now. It's a command of scripture. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So if this evening you have made the beginning of a relationship with God, or if you've done that in the past, and tonight you want pride to be buried a wrong understanding of power to be buried. If you want to nail your colors to the mast and say, I belong to Christ and it's all about him, then I'm going to ask you, would you like to be baptized? Are you willing to stand up? If you've never been baptized before by immersion, are you ready to say yes to Christ tonight by being immersed in this water? If you are, then I'd love the opportunity to baptize you if you're under 18 we'd want you to get your parents permission if you're over 18 and you have decided that you want to follow Christ and you'd like to be baptized I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand I'm going to ask you to do something slightly harder I'm going to ask you to stand up where you are I don't know if anybody is here ready to make that response but I invite you to do it now
it is not my job, Lord, to force people into decisions. It's your job to convict and it's your job to challenge and to nurture and to guide. Thank you for giving me the opportunity of asking that question. I leave its answer with every heart. And I commit the folk that have listened to me tonight to you. And I pray that in each of our lives that you would be king. In every way. Now and always. Do you know I just sense, not that there's somebody who needs to make that response, but Barry, could you just come back and play? I think that the Holy Spirit is ministering into some people's hearts and lives very, very deeply, and I don't need to know what he's doing. But I want to just give you some time to respond to him. So if he's opening up a bit of your life that you need to surrender to him right now, why don't you just allow him to continue to do that as we spend a few moments worshipping God together? Gold Hill wants to be an authentic Christ-like community. We don't, we're not perfect. We're not manufactured. We're not trying to make everything seamless and so professional that there's no room for the Holy Spirit. I think he wants to minister into some people's lives. So will you give him some space to do that? You might need to kneel. You might need to submit physically by kneeling. You might want to come and kneel here at this step in front of me, not because you're kneeling to me, but because it's a good place with space to meet with God. You might want somebody from the prayer team to pray with you. Could the prayer team be available just now, please? Thank you. I just want to give you a few moments to make a response to the Holy Spirit. Lord, have your way here and do what you want. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confronting the Idols of Our Age. I pray that it's a blessing to you and that it helps you think through how you can live faithfully for Jesus in our day and in our generation. For more information about my ministry, go to malcolmduncan.org, my blog, or my website, malcolmduncan.co.uk. And you can join me um, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Rev Malcolm Duncan or at the church that I lead, facebook.com forward slash Dundonald Elam Church. You can also check out our website at dundonaldelam.church. God bless you and I look forward to you joining me next time.